The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh God, show us how you want us to carry up your armor, what that means and how you call us to live as your people. Amen. This morning we come to the end of a several week look at the book of Ephesians. And in case you missed any of those weeks, to kind of give you a little synopsis, uh, the first half of that whole book is about um, Paul stressing God's love for us, how God has shown that love, how God has made us one because of God's love for us shown in Jesus Christ. The word love is all throughout those first three chapters. That word being for love being that word agape, agape being the word um, that, that Scripture uses to describe God's unconditional and never-ending love for us. It's a love that goes with us regardless of how we might respond. It's a love that never ends and will go with us, go with all of us forever. And then, after a long description of that, the second half of the book begins to talk about how we might respond to this incredible love that God has for us. And he begins in the very first part of chapter 4 when he says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he goes on to talk about how we are to live as people called by God. And he begins by saying, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with each other in love. I don't know about you, but those aren't things that I do very easily. He goes on, and we talked about this last week. Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's hard stuff that Paul calls for us to be as followers of Jesus. And let's remember this too, about the specific audience that, that Paul has been writing to. It's called the book of Ephesians, but it may not be just to one church. It may be a, a smattering of churches throughout um, Turkey. And it would be right in the heart of the Roman Empire. Now to remember what that was all about. The Roman Empire, their emperor was Caesar. And Caesar was not just emperor, Caesar was God. And that is what people were expected to say, that Caesar was God. It was actually on their coins that said, Caesar is the son of God. And therefore, that is what you are to confess if confronted by the Roman powers that be. And yet, there was this small group in what's now central Turkey that said somebody else was the son of God. Somebody else was Lord. In their confession that Jesus was Lord, that wasn't just something that they said. That, that's something that they'd have to risk their life in order to say. So in other words, for these people that first received this letter from Paul, not only is it hard in itself having to be subject to one another, to bear with one another, to act with humility toward one another, just living in that society was doomed to get you in trouble. Hard stuff. And so when Paul finally gets to this end of this letter that he writes, 
And he says to take up the full armor of God. If I were those folks that heard that the first time, I'd say, bring it on. I want the full armor of God because I'm going to pay back these Romans for how they have treated me. And while I'm at it, I may whoop on some other folks too. But what we'll see this morning, though, is Paul takes this very um, obvious sign of armor. It's something that these, the, this church would have seen every single day from the military occupation that was all around. Paul takes these instruments of armor and weaponry and adds a twist to the meaning of them. But before I look at this image of the whole armor of God, I want to point out a couple potential pitfalls that the church very often falls into. One of the pitfalls is that very often the church has taken this militaristic language, literally. They've taken this imagery to support military campaigns and battles and crusades against the so-called enemies of God. Because you see, God is on our side, and since God is on our side, God obviously is not on their side. It's interesting that the church so often in its history has supported the killing of others, even as we worship a Christ who says to love our enemies, even as we follow a Jesus who, as he was dying on a cross, said, Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. This support for violence is a potential and very real threat for the church. This whole armor of God. The second potential pitfall that the church often falls into is labeling who are the enemies. Paul talks about guarding against the wiles of the devil. And the church has been very good about lifting up who are the agents of the devil. Throughout its history, the church has pointed at individuals, groups, who are members of the devil's side. Very often the church gets so closely allied with the nation that it's quick to label the enemies of the nation of allies of the devil. The church has a bloody history of not only against nations, but against religious groups that are other than theirs. And there have been many really ugly times when some Christians are so certain that other Christians are agents of the devil that they're ready to kill them. Enemies of God. And so often when the church falls into this pit, it surrendered itself to the temptation of not only self-righteousness, but dehumanization. That means dehumanizing people who are loved children of God just as we are. Those are potential and very real pitfalls that we often fall into. But I do think that this whole armor of God imagery does have a lot of merit. For one thing, it reminds us that there is evil all around. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that there is evil in our world. That there is evil power that generates this evil. 
And this whole image of the whole armor of God reminds us that we as Christians cannot sit on the sidelines. We cannot be complacent and indifferent as evil does its thing. We are called to act against the evil. And as far as how Paul describes the evil, he says this. He, he talks about standing against the wiles of the devil. He says that our struggle isn't against enemies of blood and flesh, against individual people, but against the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When he talks about the rulers and the authorities throughout the New Testament, um, it's, those two words speak of earthly powers. And then in the second part, when he talks about cosmic powers and spiritual forces, he's talking about something beyond the earthly. Perhaps Paul is saying there is something beyond the earthly that influences the very earthly powers that exist in our world. What might these powers look like? As I mentioned earlier, the church very often is quick to label as evil specific groups and people. Sometimes I do have to think, though, that the church has gotten it right. When the church finally labeled Hitler's final solution to the Jewish question, I think the church got it right. But many other times, the church has just come across as self-righteous judges of those that it might disagree with. I think when Paul speaks of the wiles of the devil, it might be better for us to not focus on other people and other groups and instead consider what might be attractive to us that might indeed be of the devil. I've said this before when I talk about the temptation story. We're never tempted by things that we really don't like. For instance, I'm never going to, and I've said this before, I'm never going to be tempted to eat Brussels sprouts. Okay? Because they're gross. Okay? However, I am going to be tempted to eat that second or third bowl of ice cream. We're only tempted by the things that attract us. I think the wiles of the devil isn't about some heinous, awful crime that everyone would recognize as pure evil. Perhaps, maybe, it would be better to focus on the things that come across as very attractive. Things that are so present in our lives or in the life of our culture that we may not ever cast a different eye at them. Maybe it's good to consider our own lives first. For example, I think one of the great wiles of the devil is the rampant demand that comes from all around us that we have to have more stuff. And therefore, we need to do whatever we need to do to get enough to be able to get this stuff. Work longer and harder. Do whatever it takes to get that. Extend our credit even more than it's already extended so we can get that stuff that we just have to have and then when we get this stuff that we have to have, we recognize that really that's not what we need to have. We need to have this. And all the while, while we keep chasing after more stuff, 
There are so many others who don't have enough. And what we do is we either point the finger at these who don't have enough and say, well, you need to work harder. This is your own fault. Obviously, you've done something bad. Or, instead of pointing a finger, we just ignore it. That's a great temptation. A wiles of the devil that affects all of us. Practices of greed and indifference and self-absorption. I'd suggest another wiles of the devil is that constantly seeking out ways to make ourselves different than other people. My group has to be different than your group, and my group is better than your group, and we have to do that because we have to make ourselves look better. Or perhaps we may have to justify the ways we treat these other people. We want to make a case for why we have to hate them or ignore them or get rid of them. You know, racism in our culture arose during the colonial era. The reason why it rose in the colonial era is because African-American people were being enslaved, put into chains to go and work, and to really pump up the American economy. And we had to find some way to make sure that that was okay. So we divided the races into white and to black, and the black was always less, less than human. And we had to have that in order to keep our economy going. Official slavery's over, but racism still runs rampant. It's still the greatest sin in our nation. In short, I'd like to suggest that the wiles of the devil is anything that might pit one against another. One person against another person, one group against another group. Because when there is that separation, that word separation is literally sin. And the devil, whatever that means, loves it. But Paul offers up a way to stand against the wiles of the devil. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. Notice it's be strong in the Lord, not in ourselves. Rest in God's strength. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against that wiles of the devil. And then Paul starts talking about the different features of the armor of God. Fasten the belt of truth around your waist. A few weeks ago I talked about that phrase, speak the truth in love, and it's really not speak the truth, it's just truthing in love. Being and living in love. That's how we are called to live. Fasten that belt around our lives. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Say that three times real fast. Put on the breastplate of God bringing about God's justice into our whole world and us participating in what God is doing. As for shoes for your feet, on whatever you, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. I thought about just preaching on that one. What shoes do you put on? You put on the gospel of peace. All 
of our comings and goings, all of our relationships are based in the gospel of peace. And Christ is our peace. Take the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You notice what Paul does here. All these weapons, all these weapons that promote self-reliance and independence and violence, he turns them into practices of radical dependence on God's love to guide our lives. And sure enough, the call of God on our lives will require us to take up the full armor of God because living out the life and following in the way of Christ is not an easy thing. And left to our own devices, none of us would ever do it. I want to offer up an example of that. Most of you, I'm sure, know the hymn of faith with the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers. Most of us know that, probably all of us. You may not know that it's not in our church hymnal. And I know this hymn well. I remember singing it growing up. I'll be honest, I'm not a real big fan of it because of its strong military lyrics. Nothing against the military, but Onward Christian soldiers, it goes, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. The potential pitfall for us as church is to see the notion of war, going to war for God means to go and fight and kill the enemies of God. The potential pitfall is that the foe that we're going to fight are those who are not us. But recently I came across a piece written by an author and a, and a writer and a professor who's actually legally blind. Her name is Marva Dawn. And in a Bible study on this hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, she said that perhaps this is a very appropriate hymn for us to sing as Christians because we are thrust into a battle. It's a battle that is led by the Jesus whom we follow, and it's a battle that involves praying for our enemies, turning the other cheek, forgiving without end, pursuing greatness by being a servant of all. That's the battle that God has called us into. It's not a battle that calls for violence, it's a battle that calls for love. It's not a battle that matches me and us, the good, versus them, the evil. It's a battle about proclaiming the gospel of peace. It's not a battle that we can opt out of because we are called to follow the Christ who will lead us. With that in mind, for our hymn of invitation, we're going to sing that hymn of faith, Onward Christian Soldiers. Please stand. <clears throat>